This week on the Physio Foundations podcast, I'm talking to new graduate physiotherapist Tom Piers Barlow about moving from the public sector into private practice and getting started in research. Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So today I'm talking to Tom Piers Barlow. And Tom is a former Monash University physiotherapy student and a former student of mine. And we're going to have a chat about something that may be of great interest to some of you if you're in a similar position to Tom, and that is moving in your early years of your career from the public sector into private practice. And in Tom's case, getting started thinking about how he'll be involved in research as a clinician. So we've had previous episodes on this topic, including one with Associate Professor Christian Osadnik, which is a good one to look at if you're interested in this. But I'm really interested in Tom's story, his thoughts on where he's going, and there's a lot of very relatable um, questions that we're both going to have about this really important stage of your career, which is graduating and then getting started and developing your own special interest area and that direction in your career. And by the way, this is our 11th new graduate series on the Physio Foundations podcast. So if you're interested in this area and these topics, you can go back and find the previous episode, uh, previous episodes, uh, and you can find all of those in the, in the list of episodes. Um, but for now, let's bring him on, Tom Piers Barlow. Welcome to Physio Foundations. Hey, Luke, thanks so much for having me. Really great to be here. Great to have you back on. So we've, we've had a bit of a catch up. You were a student of mine in 2017 and you graduated four years after that. And it was really good to see you again and catch up on where you've been and what you've been doing. I've got a bunch of questions I'm itching to ask you. So let's get started with that. What, tell, us, tell us about your background and interests and who you are, what you do and uh, where you're going, where you're working, et cetera. Yeah, perfect. Absolutely. Um, so um, as you touched on before, Luke, I graduated from Monash University Physio um, in 2020, just in time for the to start working in the pandemic, which was a, an interesting experience, but a rewarding one too. Um, and yeah, started in 2017. Um, a bit about my background. Um, when I left school, I actually went to study a Bachelor of Biomedical Science initially uh, at Deakin University, which was a three-year course. Um, and then went straight into an honours year at Melbourne University to study um, uh, the research side of things within biomedical science. And I'd, I'd done a project um, for a year um, within um, leukaemia research, so very different to physio. Um, but for me, um, I learned that I really wanted to work within a science um, and scientific method background, but also within healthcare that actually involved people which actually led me to physiotherapy eventually. And so I was very fortunate to get into physiotherapy there um, where I fell in love with the profession and, and starting the profession and haven't looked back since. So it's been a great experience. Um, as I left, I, I actually went and did hospital work for a while, which was, as I touched on, very interesting in COVID. So I worked at Cabrini for a while. I worked in Alfred Health for a while too, did a lot of the rotations. Um, which at that point I decided that private practice and MSK was really where my my heart lies um, and particular interest areas that I have, well, gee, it's all very interesting. Um, it's a great profession to be in, but I'm really big on um, really big on shoulders. I really enjoy uh, delving into low back pain and hip pain too and how those two um, particular areas can coexist. Um, so I'm quite fascinated by that side of thing. 
That's that's great. You're developing some special interest areas already, which is something that we've talked about on the podcast before. The 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 idea of specialising in an area with formal qualifications and specialisation, etc., versus developing yeah. a special interest area and something that you're passionate about. And a couple of episodes ago, Tim Travail was on talking about exactly that: developing your passion and your the intersection between passion and and your skills, etc. So that's a good yeah. one to listen to. So. So you love the MSK, the musculoskeletal physiotherapy, and you sort of you found that intersection between um, science and healthcare. So you did biomedical science, and we'll come back to that when I ask you about what your next steps are and how you think you're going to dip your toe in the water of research. Let's take yeah. people back to your transition from the public health sector to private practice. So how, how prepared mm-hmm. did you feel um, transitioning from so, I mean, think about your musculoskeletal training as well. Back in 2017 mm. is when you did the bulk of your MSK training as an undergrad. Mm. And then you've worked doing various things in the hospital. And then you've gone to private practice. How did you feel? How prepared did you feel when you went into private practice? Yeah. Oh, there's a short answer and a long answer. The short answer was um, it was overwhelming for sure. Um, but also very rewarding. It was a great learning curve. And I think that was the thing that um, I, I found worthwhile about that challenge, which was to embrace that challenge and that learning curve that was coming my way. Um, the long arts would be um, I was very fortunate once I'd left public health, I'd actually just about come off uh, an, a musculoskeletal outpatients rotation at the Alfred Hospital. Uh, so that actually gave me a four-month um, bit of grounding and experience um, to have delved on some concepts, which had good mentorship in it as well. So I was very fortunate to have to have done that at that point in time before I'd even gotten that rotation given to me. I wasn't even thinking about MSK. Um, it was actually, to be honest with you, an area that I had never considered at all. Really? I actually, okay. so, yeah, I was actually thinking about neuro for a while during my hospital time. So MSK hadn't even crossed my mind. So um, many of people's origin stories have that moment of serendipity, that, that crossroad where something happens and it leads to that interest. So, yeah, that's mm-hmm. interesting. And also a really good setup to have the mentoring plus the four months of of intense training before you went to private practice. So that that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and that gave me a really good grounding um, and it is interesting. I think what I've learned uh, is sometimes the things that you weren't thinking of doing actually become the things you do do. So I think the moral of the story is never to write something off. Um, really try something first, give it your best crack, and you may be pleasantly surprised. And if you're not, that's okay, because you'll find something you do love doing, which is a curve that I went through. Um, and so that transition um, gave me a little bit more grounding, but at the same time, entering private practice was a big learning curve. Um, and probably one of the big reasons why is having knowledge is one thing, but learning to apply it with your clinical reasoning in terms of perhaps your diagnostic techniques or your differential diagnosis was the big curve. Uh, working in public health outpatients, you most of the time are going to get a diagnosis from one of the medical team or a doctor. Um so you usually know what's going on. So, for example, you might have a, a, a fracture and then they refer you to outpatients. And so you work on that. Um, or you might have some glute tendon issues, which you can work on that because it's given to you in the notes. 
Um, whereas in private, you, a lot of the onus falls on you to differentially diagnose, which I guess can dictate how successful the treatment can actually go. So that was a big curve, learning how to differentially diagnose properly. Um, and at that point, I hadn't done that for a while. So the last time I probably touched on that would have been at uni. <laughs> so it was a curve for sure. Mm. So particularly the differential diagnosis, how did your, so you, you had a special interest in neuro, neurophysio, and, and of course all the other things you'd be doing in the hospital. How did that hospital work help prepare you for pr private practice? I think it really helped prepare a lot of things. It definitely helped prepare a lot of the softer skills that I guess are required to be a good physio and a physio that can get along well with people and be able to communicate with people. Because after all, it is a people profession at the same time as it is um, a scientific profession too. So I think working with larger caseloads and communicating with that, um, working with people of different personality types and learning how to communicate in those ways. Um, and particularly through COVID, working within um, stressful times, both for patients and for clinicians and healthcare teams too, um, it gave me some really good grounding to help navigate stress and communicate within stressful environments too. So I think coming into private practice, that really helped me communicate a lot better too um, and just build that general confidence and um, sort of confidence within myself to, to handle a stressful interactions and stressful caseloads to manage too. That was a really big one. Hmm. Um, How much of that did you get when you were at university on clinical placements versus when you were in the, the deep end as a new grad? It's a, it's a transition. Of course, you get a yeah. taste for mm -hmm. it at university, but. Mm, that's a great question, Luke. Um, definitely get a taste of that on clinical placements. Um, I think the big thing with clinical placements which differed to actually working as a full-time clinician on the wards by yourself or within a team is that you, as a student on clinical placements, don't necessarily um, have all of the onus and responsibility on you. Ultimately, I think that falls back on the supervisor. So if you're in a sticky situation, you can lean on that help and draw from that experience. Mm. Um, as a clinician working full-time once he's graduated, it's a little bit trickier. So you do have to learn how to problem solve a bit more autonomously, um, which can be a curve of learning at the start um, and also building on that as you go, which is an ongoing learning thing too. Um, and I think that's the thing where you start to learn how to build through that stressful times and adversity and, and complex clinical reasoning on your own too. Mm, it's, um, it's interesting that you've brought up stress and the positive aspects of adapting to stress and then how that's mm. built you up to be a better um, clinician, because we often talk about stress as being something that's negative to mitigate or remove completely. But you mm. graduated and studied in a particularly stressful time for health professionals where there was an unknown, um, the COVID pandemic going on, a lot of unknowns, um, and there was a mm. lot of pressure on workloads. You didn't necessarily have the same um, you know, supervision as you would have had in a normal time because people were spread thin and were running around a lot of uncertainty so so you mm. really use that you really talk quite positively you are a positive uh enthusiastic guy <laughs> at the best of times but you you've, you've taken that stressful <laughs> time and said well okay well what how have i developed my communication skills and um how am i better now so that, that's interesting that's an interesting point mm. thank you yeah yeah it was um 
you go through a lot of experiences working within public health and particularly on wards, but there, there are lots of benefits to, to working through a pandemic. Um, you do learn a lot on the other side for sure. Mm. Tell us about transitioning from university to working life and how prepared did you feel mm. when you first started working as a physio? <laughs> I think um, at first I felt incredibly nervous, um, a little bit scattered, um, just trying to do what I could to give the most basic um, assessment treatment possible, do it well, hope for the best a lot of the time. To be honest with you, Luke, it was a, it, it's a big learning curve, um, but it, it's a rewarding one too. Um, I think, like shout out to Monash University, um, I, I absolutely love my time there and I'm sure many of my peers would say the same thing. We were really fortunate to have... Um, before our clinical placements have simulations which i found really really beneficial and i believe there's a lot of research done into the effects of simulations on students learning within mm. within physiotherapy too so i found that really really helpful to build on some skills and make as many mistakes as i could so i think monash really prepared us even before placements to to get out there on day one as a full-time clinician and then that coupled with actual placements it was almost a bit of a synergistic effect I think especially early on when I started third-year placements as my first blocks of placements, that gave me some good grounding. Um, but I think Monash was great with our clinical placement team and, and what we did because we could make lots of mistakes um, and have steep, steep learning curves on, on the war environment um, in our clinical placements before we actually went out into the real world and, and, and did work. Um, and so Monash was really great. Big shout out to Monash. That really helped us. And a lot of my peers I've spoken to say very similar things about how well the course was for that and that preparation phase for us. It's fantastic for me to be able to speak to you at this stage because, as you know, I work with primarily school leavers, but you, you've you studied a degree before you came into physio and it's a stage of transition from high mm. school to university and there's a lot that we do in terms of preparing students for their study habits and transition to adulthood, professionalism that's being trained. And and then it's a, just a big journey. And then often you don't see people, don't catch up with them, which is one of my hidden agendas for having this podcast and the, the new grad series. I can catch up with you and, and have a chat and see how far you've gone. So that's really good feedback for me to see what you've taken from the course into your into your working life. And what you said before was very relatable. I promise parts of this to the listeners would be relatable. So if anyone else is in your position, you said you felt nervous, scattered, hoping for the best, and earlier you said overwhelmed <laughs> but rewarding, and that's normal, is it not? Is that not just completely 100%. normal when you, it's it's a big project? You're going from um, the beginning of a professional training course to the end of it, and then being an autonomous professional with all the uncertainty and the the things that will happen, the unpredictable nature of working life. And mm. do, do you now feel a little bit, um, you're obviously quite comfortable talking about these things. You're not trying to pretend everything was easy for you, which is great. Mm. But, um, do, do you still feel nervous at times? And um, do you feel more organised? Do you feel like you're finding your feet? Yeah, that's a great question, Luke. Absolutely. The, these days, I think it's a lot easier. Um, and even when you do come across a stressful caseload or a stressful particular patient or a stressful 
whatever it is day perhaps i think um generally speaking i found as i build up my my tolerance to those things and it, it's definitely not an easy job being a physio there's lots of, of demands you have to meet um and lots of complex thinking you have to do as well so i think as you get better and build up that experience all those things do become a lot easier um and to touch on what you said earlier it's definitely 100 percent normal to feel overwhelmed in your first few months of working I, I, there are times where I still feel overwhelmed in my almost third year of working. And, you know, there, there are experienced clinicians here 15 years down the road who still say, oh, there are times where I'm a little bit stumped on something and I need to look it up. So I think it's very normal to have those moments where you're a bit stuck on something or nervous or generally just a bit overwhelmed um, because I think that's just part of being human. Um, and it'd be pretty rare to find someone who doesn't get overwhelmed when they're starting out. So what are your strategies um, then for when you're feeling overwhelmed? What did you do, particularly in those young, uh, <laughs> nearly said the young days, the early days of working yeah. as a professional? Um, what were your strategies for managing that? That's a great question. Um, honestly, I think it's okay to to just sit down and acknowledge, okay, I'm not feeling 100%. This is a pretty stressful caseload. I've got a stressful day. I, honestly, there were times where when it was appropriate, just step out off the ward for a minute, have a drink of water, do a bit of mindfulness, just digest, go back in again. Nothing wrong with that. I think it's good for you. I think it's good for the patient because if you're good, then the patient's good. And it's good for the team because if you're good, then the team's a little bit stronger too. So prioritizing you just for a minute or so just to get better again, um, recollect yourself, go, no, nah, it's all right. I got this off you go again. I think that's a really good strategy that um, we at, at Alfred Health, we were told that's okay to do. And just to just to have a, a debrief moment is okay. Um, definitely to check in with your mates, who also who study physio, who are physios, caseload discussion, reflection with them. So, okay, like I'm, you know, for example, you might say, oh, I'm not really good with this particular um, hip or knee replacement side of things. What do you do? any evidence you like drawing on, how can I make my practice better? And my my logic to that is if you are a bit stronger theoretically and a little bit more knowledgeable, you can take those skills in and, and know what to do, particularly when you dealt with tricky caseloads. Um, and I think a big thing that I learned was just accepting that it's okay uh, to, to not be as great at it right now because it will get easier. It's a tricky profession. And like anything, it's like learning to ride a bike. You're going to fall off a few times. You'll take the training wheels off eventually. You'll be good. So just just acknowledging it will take some time to build and get stronger as a as a clinician um, and as someone to work with in those environments mm. for sure. With the caveat that your most foundational things are ticked off. So someone like you who is yeah. a really good student and who has this commitment to lifelong learning and you've already mentioned you have mentors as well, you are going to be all on top of the most important things, the need to refer someone if they're not responding to treatment, the red flags, the psychosocial yellow flags. Uh, and Matt um, Donnelly on his episode a few um, a few months ago now talked about that as well. So not being perfect mm. doesn't mean that you're missing important things as well. So you know, that feeling of, okay, you might do things differently in a few years from now as you gain experience, but the fundamentals, the foundations are there. So. That's yeah. great that your confidence 100%. has come up. Let's go back to uni again for uh, for a second. 
you talked about the simulations. We had an episode with Narelle Dalwood and she talked all about the simulation program here, but also simulation in general is, is improving your confidence and getting you ready to mm. getting you exposed to the feeling of being you know, in a simulated clinical environment. And then you said, and I made sure I make as many mistakes as I could. <laughs> yes. I, I wrote exactly. that down. That, that really resonated. Make as many. So this is talking about with um, actors, with patients who are not, um, there's, there's nothing at stake and you can make mistakes mm. safely and you get feedback. So why, why is it important to make mistakes and how did that help you get better and learn? Mm. Absolutely. Um, I think making mistakes is a really integral part of learning. Um, and I don't think it's something, I don't think making your general mistakes are anything to be ashamed of as long as you're you're honest, you maintain your integrity and you just try your best. No one's perfect, but I think making mistakes is something that can really build on your learning because it um, encourages you to reflect um, and reflect on things that you could have done better. It prompts a lot of discussion. It prompts you to explore a bit more laterally and deeper into how you can be a little bit better. Um, I think it's a good thing to reflect on times that you do well with things and acknowledge and give yourself a pat on the back, but also don't be afraid to make a few errors and delve into that because you'll definitely be a better clinician and learner if you just embrace those mistakes. Um, and being on um, during those simulations that we had at uni, like you said, there was nothing at stake. There was no patient safety mm. um, at stake. So you could make as many mistakes and as learn as much as you needed, which was great because when you get out on the wards as a student, um, it's still okay to make mistakes too. Um, and, and and keep checking in with your supervisors and keep making sure you're reflecting and doing all the things you got to do to learn. But I think making mistakes is a really key part of learning. If we didn't make mistakes, how would we learn? I don't, yeah, I don't think we can emphasize how important that is. Yeah, that's, that is what learning is. It's you're trying to find the edges of your knowledge and your skill and get feedback on them and work forwards mm. and iterate forwards. So I thought that was a, a point that really bared repeating. So now let's talk to students. What tips do you have for students at the moment who are studying physio? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, speaking from someone who was in your position once and not that long ago, um, just, just get as much exposure to what you enjoy as you can. Um, I know some people who were sports trainers, for example, through their studies and loved that MSK side of things. So that's a great option. I knew people who were allied health assistants working in, in the private and public hospital systems um, because they were trying to get their foot in the door within hospital experience and perhaps um, other, other areas of experience. Um, even if you're not really sure, do all of the above. Um, getting experience is integral. Um, particularly when you're a student and you're learning and it's a great way to set yourself apart, perhaps from the others who are going for jobs too. Um, and that will allow you to make mistakes and have questions that you need to answer as you go, which will make you repeat maybe less mistakes next time and get a little bit better. So getting as much experience as you can would be a big piece of advice. Um, and another piece of advice I'd give is that Monash is great for learning and generally my understanding is that the physio 
degrees in itself are great for learning. So draw on your lecturers, draw on everyone around you you can. Ask all the um, inadvertent commas, dumb questions. Is you very rarely a dumb question. Um, and just draw as much from the resources that you have as possible because that's going to allow you to learn a bit more accelerated too. Um, so those yeah. are a couple of tips from me. Just embrace it. Get your, get your hands dirty. They're good, they're good tips. And so you mentioned honesty and integrity earlier, and that's something that you display and that you have a lot of. And, and so you need that honesty and you need that forgiveness of yourself as well to, to ask those dumb questions and make those mistakes that you've talked about. It's not about performing and knowing everything and regurgitating information. And, you know, so I guess some people have are naturally inclined to, you know, to be like that a little bit more than others. Mm. It does take some, yeah. some confidence to say I'm wrong or I made a mistake mm. or admit to it or go into something knowing that you've, you've prepared properly for this tutorial, this simulation, but you're probably not going to be successful and you have a go and you put your hands up and say, I, I got it wrong. And you're then yeah. at that stage, then you're open to feedback and learning in a way that you're not when you're trying to be perfect all the time. I'll try Absolutely. to summarize that a little bit. Mm. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So that, so you're getting exposure to things within you and building up those special interest areas, even as a student, and they can change as you go through your career and you can add to them. Um, and then asking questions, getting your hands dirty, as you said. They're, so they're really good tips. Let's talk about now 2023. The world's a funny place, isn't it? Particularly Absolutely. the online <laughs> digital world. So our students have a disadvantage that I never had, and you had less than me, and that's the just availability of online distractions and entertainment. So if you were studying physio, first year physio right now, let's make it next mm. year because this year is almost over, in 2024, yeah. and you had a phone in your pocket filled with all the wonders of the world, including the <laughs> dreaded TikTok and the messenger chat and everything else that might keep you awake till four in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing what you know and having the success that you've had so far, what strategies would you use to, to mitigate that and stay on the path and avoid those distractions? Yeah, that's a really good question, Luke. Um, there's lots of things one can do. It, it sometimes feels like an uphill battle. I'm going to put my hand up first and say um, definitely wasn't the perfect student um, and I, I did fall prey to lots of distractions throughout my university life. Um, but like I said, it's about making errors and knowing what your limitations are, what you are good at. Um, for me, I knew that if my phone was on my desk or in my pocket, at some point my study stamina would drop and my desire to reach my phone would increase. So Things that really I think either did help me or would have helped me or things that I think would help others based on what I know now would be have your phone or a distractive device in a spot that's inconvenient for you to get to. Um, so put it in a box in a wardrobe. How annoying would it be to have to open up a wardrobe and open a box just to get your phone and look up TikTok while you're studying? Um, make it hard on yourself. Put put a barrier or resistance to that temptation. Um, that would make a big difference. And I think you'd be surprised how quickly you you study and how much your learning skyrockets from there. 
Um, so I think that's a really big one, just putting away those distractions. Yeah, that, that is a big one. And, of course, it's balanced because with the, we, we can talk negatively about the impact of technology and distractions, but there's, in, there's a, so many positive elements to it as well. And we've never been more connected and there's opportunities that come from that. Um, no doubt most of the listeners are listening to this on a phone at the moment. Um, we, <laughs> we, we, we rely on technology and use it. So we don't want to demonize it, but mm. it may be that there's crucial periods where you need to concentrate and you have tasks to do where if you take Tom's advice and, and just recognize how much of a distraction a phone can be and you put it somewhere else, that might be really helpful. Um, what other general tips could you give for students? I'm just pushing you a bit of you, the, the two so far were, was were related to interests, you know, getting exposure to things within your interest and getting feedback and asking questions, getting your hands dirty. And now we're talking about distractions. How else mm. can you optimize what you're doing here in 2023 and stay on the path and still enjoy it and end up in the position you're in now? years after graduating that's a great question um another thing that based on what i know now and and maybe what people have told me over time would be try and try and substitute um say a distractive device or something that could distract you with something else um it's it's one of those things where you might decide okay maybe i'm checking my phone because during my study because i'm bored or I need a dopamine hit. So instead of that, maybe make the distraction a bit more productive. Make it something that might benefit maybe your physical and your mental health, give you a break. So maybe an example could be go outside for a 20-minute walk because I'm, I'm going to put my hand up again whenever I've opened up my phone and, and had a bit of a scroll on Instagram or Facebook. It could be 30 minutes before I realise, oh, I better put that down again. So replacing that 20 or 30 minutes that could be spent on a phone and using it for something productive that might boost those, those endorphins naturally and more healthy and get back to studying or, or to that task you need to do is probably more of benefit um, and would probably help more than sitting on a phone. Um, and even another thing would be combining those techniques. So putting away the phone and acknowledging, okay, I'm not going to demonize it. There's still helpful things that I can do with social media, but for now, this is study time. It's dedicated. Phone in a box in the wardrobe. Going to go for a walk instead. Those little things can be really helpful. And not just when you're at university, um, when you're in lecture mode, but also when you're on placement because there's that expectation you go away and, and learn outside of hours. Even as a clinician now, um, I spend time um, learning and studying outside of um, my, my, my contact hours too. Um, and sometimes you need to develop those things. And I think if you can develop them as a student, that will help you when you start uh, life working and with more adult responsibilities too. So that's a, a good thing you can do in your former years is build those habits so you do come off a little bit better when push comes to shove later as an adult. Yeah. Well, eventually you'll be the one making the decisions and running that tutorial <laughs> and being in charge of that ward. and and. So having a having a strategy for how you manage yourself, but also your lifelong learning is really important. How's it different being a practicing physiotherapist who still does a lot of professional development, still in the books, still reading, listening to a lot of podcasts and non-traditional media, you read journal articles. How does that 
feel? How different mm. does it feel now than when you were sort of being forced to do it as a student? <laughs> yeah, I think, and again, being honest, um, as a student, sometimes it did feel like it was a, a forced effort. Um, but I think once you develop that interest in an area, it then becomes less of an effort. Um, and I might just be a nerd, but that's sort of how I approach it. I think if you're really interested in something, there's going to be perhaps more of an inclination to to look it up in your own time or read about it, discuss it with a colleague um, in the hallway before lunch, those sort of things. Um, and I think that's a really important part as well, I might add, of, of how we do get probably better and keep learning the science behind it as physiotherapists is to continue learning. And if you build up those habits that we spoke about in the former question, it will help you here as well. Mm. And what you touched on earlier was your how quickly you developed the special interest area, low back pain, shoulder, um, MSK, and and that interest is what drives the learning. It's really hard to mm. remember anything if you don't have any um, any association or emotional connection with it. When you've got that passion and interest, you can take in so much information and build up that model, a mental model in your head. So, yeah, these are really good tips. Tom, this is really good. So take us now into the future. We've been in the past. Let's move into the future <laughs> and let's talk about your interest in musculoskeletal research. And mm. so at the moment, working in private practice, biomedical science background. So you started off being science data-driven with your mindset and what you wanted to do. Then you discovered a love for healthcare. You put them together. Mm. Um so there's lots of different ways you can approach being research active that many people, in my experience, uh, either haven't thought of or don't understand or don't know about. And so I've touched on those in previous episodes with Christian I mentioned before um, and, and other discussions I've had, the ways you can be research active without necessarily going off and doing a research degree or, or changing career direction. So what are some of the ideas you've had so far? Because this is this actually is the catalyst for our conversation. I was going to zoom mm. with you. We we're going to talk about this question, and then I talked you into doing a podcast episode. So, let's do it live here. Absolutely. What are you um, thinking so far? I'm still in those primitive stages of understanding myself, um, but there's a few things that I've I've learned and read about along the way that um, I'm dabbling with or, or thinking about dabbling in. Um, I think at a very primitive level. Uh, an easy way to get involved in in some form of research as a practicing clinician would be to to pull up PubMed or pull up Scopus or pull up something and and find an, an area of interest to you, and it'll just be some sort of research um, based off that. Just just learn, you know. For example, I'm very interested in um, I'm very interested in rotator cuff related shoulder pain. Is something that I think is quite fascinating. So sometimes I find myself um, after hours, just having a little bit of a look online and looking at the current research available um, and just, just trying to upskill a little bit more, learn some assessment techniques, learn some good treatment options that are available um, and, and just sort of boost my, my uh, knowledge off that. Um, so be, being able to work as a clinician and understand the research and learn and be just actively in your own time is a, is a big thing. Um, I think another thing that I've I've learned along the way would be to find a mentor and and have someone you can regularly chat to about research. Um, so, for example, I've got a really close friend of mine who's um, a very experienced uh, physio, 
um, we often have regular conversations about um, MSK from a sports context, from a, a chronic pain context. We, we talk about it all. And every time we meet up, we'll, we'll ask about how we are, but it often ends up in a big um, intellectual discussion about, about physio. <laughs> we can't really take ourselves out of that conversation, which is good because we both enjoy it and we're learning stuff off each other. Um, even even at my work currently, we often have um, journal clubs and, and shoots where we talk about research. And so those are some ways you can be away from research but kind of be in it at the same time. And it might set up some good habits and good interests, powers along the way. So if you do tip your, your toes in the sand of research a bit, you might, you might have more of an idea of what you're doing. Mm, really being that consumer of research. Being a consumer of research, yeah. that's, that's a great way to put it, Luke. Definitely. And I think if you, and it doesn't have to be about every part of the body or every part of physio, just finding those areas that you at least are interested in pretty much correlates, I think, with you actively doing it yourself and increasing the chances of you you doing it yourself. Um, another thing that I actually was going to sign up for, I know that Pedro um, online actually have uh, like a volunteer um, program where you can actually rate Pedro articles. Um, so I think you get you can do some training in that and rate Pedro articles. I haven't done that myself, but was thinking about it. Um, but even things like that are a way to be involved in research too, just to um, keep piquing your interest. I like how you're talking more broadly about research engagement and talking about really consumption of research, but also becoming more research literate and training yourself. For example, mm. finding a special interest area, selectively reading articles in that area. Then when you're looking at the easy to digest research summaries like infographics and even podcast conversations, that will feed into that. You'll be able to go to a conference or read those infographics or look at the um, the latest um, research summary on, on many of the websites we can direct people to. Physio Network and Learn.Physio are two of my favorites. Right? You can look at that stuff and have a different or, or deeper idea than the person who just read it and took it from face value. I mean, have you found that yourself if in the area of rotator cuff related shoulder pain, when you go back to the easy to, easy to digest summaries, is it, um, is it helping, helping you understand what's going on? Oh, without a doubt, Luke, definitely. Um, and that's one I actually didn't touch on, which I'm glad you brought up. Um, Learn.Physio and Physio Network are fantastic resources for clinicians, for students, and for people who are transitioning out of being a student um, into, into a clinician. Um, and in my case, it was actually super helpful for when I was leaving the hospital system, going into private practice and actually building those skills. It's a great way to learn knowledge. And I think if you keep up with those things that are easier to digest um, and perhaps might be more engaging as well, going away and reading a journal article or, or, or having that intellectual discussion with someone gives you more to talk about, gives you a better grounding. Um, so those would be great go-to points as well for someone, I think, trying to dabble in research. And if mm. you find it hard to read an article, have a subscription to Learn.Physio or Physio Network because there's great resources on, resources on that that have been really helpful to me and lots of colleagues I know too. We see how other people approach reading, summarising the research, and it, it's not about whether they're right, although a lot of it's it's going to be going to be pretty good and pretty accurate it's it's more about the process and mm. how they've approached it and broken it down and it does help people go from 
a blank page or a or sorry just a journal article which is really hard to read if you you haven't um, had research training before to understanding that research um, what other ways have you what other ways have you thought about integrating research into your practice so have you have you thought about going to any scientific conferences or doing anything else a little bit more formal research related absolutely um I haven't had a chance to, but going to scientific conferences would be something definitely that's on my agenda. That'd be a great way to network and engage with other clinicians who are perhaps like-minded um, like yourself, or maybe even um, learn about areas of interests that aren't even areas of interest to you yet and that you might go into one day. So I think it's a great idea to be having that network connection with those sorts of things. That's a really um, good point. That's and I can talk from experience on that. That you, you you do you go to those conferences thinking, oh well, I'm going to go to the knee, may have special interest in the knee. I'll go to the knee stream and maybe the shoulder stream, and then you end up going to, in the case of the Sports Medicine Australia conference to the Red S presentation and learning a whole lot about that con, that um, you know, the conditions associated with Red S. Mm. I didn't even expect to be so interested in, and learn so much of it. So I think sometimes some people I've spoken to um, don't realize what a conference really is. The other thing you said, it was the networking opportunities. Once you're in, it's this little, um, if we say it goes for three or four days, it's this little world that you're in, especially if you've traveled there, everyone's traveled there together and you've got your conference accommodation, you've got the welcome function and the, the dinner at the end and uh, everyone gets on the dance floor at the end. And it's, you, you'll never have such an opportunity to just go and rub shoulders with someone who's you feel this, you know, you wouldn't have a conversation with them normally. And before you know it, you're, mm -hmm. you're really learning something off them. So conferences are a good one. That sounds great. Um, what about um, the formal pathways of research? It's, you've only been mm -hmm. out for a couple of years, but have you, and you've, you've done two degrees already. So you're probably not too interested in, going back to university again, but what, have you had any thoughts about formal research training down the track, PhDs, for example, and masters of research? Yeah. The, the, the day that I click submit with my last assignment and, and probably submitted my exam, I went, that's it. You'll never see me walk foot in a university again. Same. Yeah. And then As I, I came back. <laughs> now I'm thinking, well, you could probably take, you could probably, um, leave university because you ever really leave when you're in a in a profession where you're always learning um and i think i've always had a, a strong interest in learning and asking why to to questions and understanding how things work um and then i sort of think well if i'm going to spend a lot of my time as a physio doing that maybe doing research is actually something that would be really of interest um and so i would love to be involved in research at some point um, even if it was a part-time thing. Um, I've thought about a PhD. That's something I'm still kind of chatting to my my other half about a little bit, whether there's the feasibility for that going back to study. I wouldn't write it off, but at least being involved in some sort of research program would be a huge thing for me. I'd love to be able to do, even if it was like a part-time thing, um, if there's any opportunities out there like that, because um, uh, it's something that I don't think I could ever really want to step away from um funny when i left university doing biomed i left because i wanted to study something scientific but actually work with people um, and have those interactions um, and although i still love doing that 
naturally my brain just gravitates back towards data and science and the scientific method and how things work and how um, we can have something um, cause another thing and that cause and effect type thing is, is just great fascination to me and understanding how things work. And I think that is a really important thing and that's why we have physiotherapy as a profession because we're an evidence-based profession that uses research to build on itself. And so in my mind, it would be silly to not love research because that's what physio is. It's using research to give better patient outcomes. And you've got a wider definition of research than just published articles in a journal. What we're talking about here is the use of research in your practice, but also the way of thinking. So you've got a natural curiosity for how things work and an aptitude for you know, thinking about things and numbers, for example, if you're doing quantitative research. That's what mm. you need. You really need that. You really need that interest and curiosity and the desire to do it. Mm. And then it doesn't have to be a formal degree, although part of my job is talking people into signing up to a PhD, right, and becoming a PhD <laughs> student. There is that. But you have to be ready for it as well. You need everything also lined up in your life. Um, so mm. for some people, it's a matter of going and getting that clinical experience, developing those special interest areas, and then going into the PhD in one of those areas. Mm. And for others, it's more a matter of timing, doing it before the, you know, the other responsibilities um, become um, too much, for example. So it's very personal when you mm. do it. And, but what's fundamental is have that curiosity and that drive to look at things and, and create new knowledge. And that's what research is mm. doing. But as I've said many times on these podcast episodes before, it's very scalable. There's many different ways that you can be research active. So you mentioned part-time, for example. So you can do research degrees part-time, but you can also be a clinician researcher who's getting involved in research mm. projects, getting access to patients, um, becoming, you know, developing research skills in the clinic, if you're collecting outcome measures, for example, um, supervising students who are doing their research project in the university as an external um, uh, supervisor, for example, bits and pieces can really add up in research. A lot of things aren't advertised, but you put it out there and you, you send out the emails and the LinkedIn requests like we did. We were talking about mm. this topic and it leads to a podcast episode and now I know more about you and your interests and so does the audience. So it all spreads in that way, but it's got to start with honesty, like you've said before, and honest questions. I'm not sure. What do you think about this and that? And that curiosity, you want to come and, mm. and, and put some effort into discovering something new. So yeah. getting philosophical here, awesome. but it, it, it's true. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to think about why you're doing it. You can't just go, oh, well, I'm going to do this, and then I'll go and do my PhD. Why are you doing a PhD? Why, would, why do you want to be doing research? It, it can't just be for a marketing thing. Oh, I'm evidence-based. What does that mean? The research, mm. drive for doing research yeah. has to come from the person doing it. You've got to be thinking about what are the problems that I want to solve. So that's really nice to hear that from you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, it's, 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 it's funny. Um, and I, like I said before, I, I never envisioned myself really wanting to necessarily do it. Um, but I think a lot of that interest in research has peaked for me exactly as you said, how you said before, Luke, it's you learn that you have these special interest areas 
and you realize you just have this thirst for knowledge and you want to know more and then you you might build that understanding and know okay maybe there are other bits of research that haven't been discovered yet in this particular back or hip pain population and maybe I'm interested and maybe I there isn't a lot of research out there maybe I really want to know that and then before you know it you go oh maybe I could be part of that maybe I could do that um and I think physiotherapy um is a profession that offers a world of opportunity probably which much of which I don't even know about yet myself so it's an exciting field to be in at this time and so much research is coming out on how we can be better clinicians and follow the best evidence. So it's it's a it's a very dynamic, exciting time as a young clinician to be in, because there's just so much research out there that's coming off the press. It's a quite amazing. Mm. And and you've got that passion for it. You've got you really seem to understand um, how lucky we really are to be in the times we're in and have that ac- access to so many things through the the technology we've got. So it's really good to hear it in your words rather than me always talking about things and to get you on and get your perspective. So <laughs> I've got a lot out of that, Tom. We, we need to stay in contact because of your, we've got a shared special interest in the shoulder and MSK research. I'd um, love to stay in contact and yarn about it with you. <laughs> yeah. And so we'll do that. And so this is how it works. You, we're doing it publicly on the podcast, but then we'll continue the conversation offline. And if you're thinking, well, how do I get involved in this? You, you need to sort of listen to some of the suggestions Tom's had in this episode about um, the way you frame it, the way you approach it, because he's got quite a lot of curiosity. I'm talking about you in front of you here, Tom. He's got quite a lot of curiosity and but also passion and interest for the topics. And so you've got to sort of find whatever it is that you're interested in, but also what you're good at, and then just keep going. It's a slow burn, isn't it? It's a, mm. It takes many, many years to develop your confidence as well. If we go back to a um, many minutes ago now, probably an hour ago, I don't know how long we've been talking, when you really talked about your experiences as a new grad being nervous and scattered and hoping for the best to a point where now you're really quite confident and you're, you're also humble and, and, and honest and you know, you've, but you've got this viewpoint of, well, I know what I don't know and I'm going to keep working on it and I'm going to keep building on it. You can't get become an expert overnight you're not going to be an expert in your first couple of years of practicing but if you've got a good attitude no. it counts for a lot that's right and I, I kind of wonder if we ever will be experts. and i'm probably thinking quite philosophically here luke but I, I almost wonder if we ever will become experts there's so much we don't know but then the more i think about well, will we ever become experts it probably drives more questions to be answered which is also a good thing because it means we keep engaged and we keep learning and we forever have an interest in being, I guess, students for as long as we live. Um, and that's probably the other bit of advice I'd give to, to students. If you don't understand something, look it up. Don't beat yourself up. Um, you will learn it at some point. You'll get there. And even the best clinicians are probably still looking things up all the time. So just as long as you have that um, drive to ask why, why does this work? Why is this ankle stiff? Why is that person's gait shuffly? You know, why does that person with shoulder pain hate reaching for the cereal box in the top cupboard because their shoulders are six out of ten pain? Ask yourself why to every little tiny question you possibly can. Um, perhaps to my detriment, almost neurotically, <laughs> but it really does drive an interest in understanding how things work and why it works. And that's, I think, the point of being a physio. 
Um, it's about knowing how things work and how we can apply our knowledge. So if you like understanding how things work and you like asking yourself the question why, then I think physio is a great profession for you, for sure, which is why I think we're so lucky as physios. We get to ask questions. We get to ask why. Not we have to, but we get to. And that's the cool part about it. Brilliant, Tom. So well said. There's so much in that episode for people to reflect on. And I'm, I'm just imagining being at your stage or being, say, a new grad, and I can remember it clearly, and how lucky I would feel to have people who can relate and talk to about these experiences that you're going through um, as you graduate and as you move into your the next stage of your profession. So thanks very much for sharing everything with us. We're going to obviously stay in contact and we've got more to talk about online and offline. So we'll have to do another episode in the future. But for now, let's leave it there. And thanks again, Tom. Perfect, Luke. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. I, I really appreciate it. It's great talking to you. No worries. So just some housekeeping. If you if you want to help promote the episode and get this out to other um, like-minded people in the same stage as their career, if you found this helpful, perhaps if you're uh, at a more advanced stage of your career and you work, employ new grads, for example, um, please share it with them. Share it on social media. You can connect with us and tag us in at Periton Physio. That's Susanna and I, or at Luke Periton, which is me, of course. And you can find us on all the different channels. Um, and then we'll make sure we do part two with Tom because he's got a lot to share with us. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where you go over the next five years. But that's fantastic. So thanks a lot, Tom. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Luke. Really appreciate your time. And until next time, this is Tom Piers Barlow and Luke Periton wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning. 